Welcome back to Ether Hour, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dimitri Kalyagin and a very, very special guest, somebody I'm sure who ultimately probably needs no introduction to this channel. We're joined by Abbot Trifon, the Abbot of All Merciful Savior Monastery on Vashon Island under the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia in Washington State. This is a true honor to have him here. We're going to be discussing all sorts of things, most particularly his spiritual father, Elder Dimitri of Santa Rosa. So I'll give him a chance to introduce himself in a second. Dimitri, how are you doing? Doing great, Conrad. And of course, it's a great pleasure having Father Trifon here, all the way from northwestern United States. I mean, it's uh, you know uh, we, we've heard we've heard about your successes sort of in the YouTube media sphere and sort of getting the message out to many people about the Orthodox tradition, the Orthodox Church Father, and essentially. In a way, um, as a monastic conducting a missionary work in this new media sphere, um, it's it's it is quite impressive, especially in this new um, in this new age. But nevertheless, you know, it is a great honor to have you here, and hopefully, we'll have a lot to speak about, especially about your spiritual father, who unfortunately on the internet not much is known about. About Father Dimitri, yes. Indeed. So, Father, in the off chance that there is somebody in my audience who is not familiar with your fantastic YouTube channel, which will be linked below, or your beautiful monastery, could you, you know, give us a little background on yourself, and maybe that will lead us right into talking about uh, your spiritual father, who hopefully in my lifetime could be a canonized saint. Well, I certainly uh, expect that he will be. Um, in fact, a number of years ago, I had a spiritual son of mine, Shane John Swenson, who is an an incredible iconographer, uh, take a photograph that I had uh, done of Father Dimitri many years ago and uh, make an icon of it. So we have an icon of Blessed Dimitri of Santa Rosa. We have the, the finished icon in the altar of our monastery church, and then um, we've printed a number of photographic images of it, and I have one in my study where I'm sitting right now, and I have one in my monastic cell. Uh, Archbishop Kirill, my bishop, has one. He knew Father Dimitri. And, uh, and then Shane also did an icon of Father Dimitri, Blessed Dimitri, uh, that was given to Mother Susanna of the Kazan Skeet in Santa Rosa. Uh, she was his spiritual daughter and uh, by extension, she is my spiritual sister because he tantrid me as a as a monastic. I should I should say a little bit about myself. I was raised Lutheran, and uh, I was very active in the Lutheran Church until towards the tail end of my sophomore year in college. I'd left Concordia, then Concordia College in Portland, Oregon. It became Concordia University, closed a few years ago uh, because of financial difficulties. And um, I had gone to Concordia with the intent of becoming a Missouri Synod Lutheran minister. By the time my sophomore year was ending, I had switched to another college and, and decided that I did not want to be Lutheran. And in fact, I, I totally abandoned my Christian faith and then in uh, a period of time when I was pretty desperate for something spiritual, uh, I joined the San Francisco Zen Center and uh, practiced Zazen for years. Um, I eventually um, became a psychiatrist, or a psychologist, excuse me, 
and I, um, I worked in Portland, Oregon, in a clinic with some friends. But ultimately, I found no satisfaction there. I taught in a small college for a short period of time, but I was so scandalized by the behavior of some of my uh, fellow uh, academics, uh, I felt that they didn't really respect and love their students, and that they were in it for the wrong reasons, for uh, prestige and uh, money. And I finally decided that if I stayed there any longer, I might become like them. So I went on a sabbatical, and it was during that time that I entered Holy Virgin Joy of All Husaro Cathedral for the first time in San Francisco, uh, and attended a divine liturgy with a then Archbishop Anthony serving. And uh, I was so completely moved by what I saw, not only the, the beauty of this huge cathedral, but I had a, a question. During the liturgy, I had a question answered that I had asked as a 10-year-old of my Lutheran pastor, why did the God of the Old Testament care so much about how he was worshipped that he would design, the architect of the cosmos would design the temple in Jerusalem and the vestments and tell each rank of priest what they were to do in that temple, but he doesn't seem to care now. And the pastor's response was, well, they were under the old covenant and we are under the new. And I thought as a 10-year-old, what a lame answer. <laughs> and uh, so here I was standing in Holy Virgin Cathedral in my early 30s, and I beheld this incredible, beautiful church, beautiful services. I didn't see the services as centered on the clergy, but centered on the Holy of Holies. And I still remember when the royal doors and the veil were opened, sensing that I was beholding uh, the Holy of Holies that we studied when I was a kid uh, in the temple in Jerusalem. And, uh, and I saw the tabernacle on the holy table, and I saw the ark, the, the dwelling place of God. And it, it had such a huge impact on me that when I left the cathedral, I... By God's divine providence, I met a couple of Orthodox monks, and I engaged them in conversation, and then it went from there, and eventually I wrote two letters of resignation, one to the college and one to the clinic, and uh, I went back to Portland and got rid of my stuff and my house, and, and I moved back to the Bay Area, and then uh, eventually I was tonsured a monk. And... I have to tell you that even back then, before I became Orthodox, I had heard about this elder, Dimitri, in Santa Rosa, California, at the Kazan Skeet. Everything I heard about him, he, he was some holy elder who was a clairvoyant, and, and I wanted to know more about him. And so when I finally decided that I wanted to be a monk, I went to him, and he ultimately tonsured me, and he became my spiritual father. 
that's a beautiful story, and I can't help but notice some of the similarities to, I mean, Father Seraphim Rose was such an influence on me becoming coming into orthodoxy, and you were on the West Coast as well. You were into the Zen Buddhist, that, that zeitgeist that was going on at the time. And I guess that's a great, that'll be my first question leading us into, I guess, this uh, audio hagiography, I guess, we'll attempt to build, is at that time in orthodoxy, I guess you could say, from the 80s through 2000, I guess, when you were really getting into your monastic career at the end there, what was orthodoxy like at the time? How was the, what was the situation like? What was the situation like from people who had come from Russia? How were these characters interacting? Like we have Father Sarah from Rose, who we know passed away in the early 80s, and you have your spiritual father, Elder Dimitri, who passed away in the early 90s. Were these people all familiar with each other? And you said you were familiar with him before you were even Orthodox. So how were they? It seems that they were making more of an impact back then than even some places are having with Orthodoxy now. It's very, it's very fascinating to me. Well, first of all, um, uh, Father Seraphim, which I refer to as Blessed Seraphim Rose, we also have an icon of him uh, in our church uh, as Blessed Seraphim of Platina. And uh, he's another one that I believe will eventually be glorified as a saint of the Universal Church. The thing about Father Seraphim that, that I first uh, noticed is the similarities between his journey and mine, you know, with his, his journey with, with a form of Buddhism, not exactly the same as mine, but, but ultimately in Buddhism. And I think it was certainly something that a lot of my contemporaries uh, delved into Hare Krishna and uh, the Hare Krishna movement and Zen Buddhism and then, of course, New Age movement uh, because we were starved for something spiritual, but we had all felt that Christianity was just a debunked religion that had no relevance to the modern age. And when I discovered orthodoxy, it was like I, I felt like I was discovering Christianity for the first time. Uh, and I still feel that way. I, I certainly don't question the reality that there are Protestants and Roman Catholics who are true Christians and who love Jesus Christ as I do, uh, and who are probably, uh, because of, of their seriousness and taking their faith, will inherit the kingdom of God. I don't doubt that whatsoever. But I, I've noticed more and more frequently that Protestants, in, in their dire attempt to, uh, to become relevant to their people uh, and to keep people in, because these churches are losing mass numbers of people that are walking away. The Methodist church is a good example. They've, they've lost millions of people. Uh, the... the Recently, I read where the Church of England, uh, that in 20 years may not even exist. I, uh, you know, the coronation of, of King Charles with all of this uh, Anglican bishops there and the Archbishop of Canterbury there. And I, and I remember looking at some of the news images of this, and I'm thinking, how are these people taking their faith seriously when no one in England takes it seriously. 
It's sort of like it's, it's some image that is related to the crown, but not related to the hearts and the faith of the people. So I, I see this as sort of indicative of what's happening around uh, the Western world. People are in mass leaving. When I was in high school, I remember reading statistics about the, the Lutheran churches in, uh, um, in the Scandinavian countries and how even though they were all at the time state churches and that most every member of those state, uh, member of those nations was a baptized Lutheran, uh, but there, the, the number of people that were actually attending Lutheran churches was, was way down there. I think it was around 3%. Now, it's, it's more like hovering around 1%, if that. And so, you know, essentially that means these, these churches have died. And at some point, people are going to wake up and decide, why are we paying the salaries of the clergy uh, who are essentially state employees for something that is irrelevant to the vast majority of our people? It's interesting that in an age when all of this is happening, we are seeing the powerful resurgence of, of Orthodox Christianity in Russia. Uh, this is a nation that, uh, that during the Soviet uh, persecution of the churches where uh, bishops and priests and monastics were executed and churches were imploded or closed or turned into other venues such as nightclubs and and uh, bars and whatever uh, these churches uh, even monasteries i saw a photograph recently of the patriarch sitting in christ the savior cathedral and he's surrounded by abbots and abbesses of the or of the monasteries and it was just totally amazing because these the, the whole interior of, uh, in front of the iconostasis, this massive iconostasis, is made up of monastics who are heads of monasteries. And all you have to do is sit there and look at the numbers and realize that monasticism in the former Soviet Union has reached almost the proportions that they had during the time of the czars. And churches are being built throughout Russia, new churches. When I was in Moscow many years ago, I saw new churches that were being built. And even Christ the Savior Cathedral, which was imploded by orders of Stalin because it offended him when he could look out his window in the Kremlin and see this massive cathedral. So he had it destroyed. And they were going to build this, this uh, large essential temple to Marxism. But the foundation to build such a building was not possible. So they ended up clearing it all out. And they built this giant cross-shaped swimming pool that was at the time the largest swimming pool in the world. And it was a heated pool. And then what happened, and I actually met uh, a woman when I was in Moscow who told me that she had been baptized by her grandmother at night in that pool because priests were forbidden to have anything to do with with children children couldn't be brought to churches 
young people couldn't be brought to churches. It was illegal. You could be arrested. And if a priest allowed them into his church, he would be arrested. And so these old women who kept the faith alive secretly would take their children, their, their grandchildren, to that giant pool and baptize them. And, and this woman told me that during that time, on cold nights, that oftentimes the steam rising from this giant swimming pool would be shaped like a giant onion dome. This is a miracle. So the resurgence of Orthodox Christianity in Russia is a miracle. And obviously, God is behind this. It's interesting that during the Nixon administration, Henry Kissinger actually said, and I read it when I was young, that Russia would never be great until they abandoned their Orthodox Christianity. And we in the West have kept that image of, well, Russia cannot be great because they're not buying into this one world order. And they have this Russian Christianity. And after all, Putin is a fake. He's not really a Christian. And, um, and the patriarch and Putin are both KGB, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, if you go there, if they were KGB, how do we explain the resurgence of this ancient faith in Russia? How do we explain it? So, you know, th this, is, this is our world today. And I really believe uh, in my heart of hearts that God was merciful to me to reveal to me the truth of orthodoxy. And I cannot imagine. I mean, if I was still in my former profession, I would be retired by now and probably living in a nice house on the Oregon coast. But here I am. I'm in a monastery on an island surrounded by a forest, and I've never been happier. And it's because orthodoxy has touched my heart to the depths of my soul. That's very striking, Father. I, I just wanted to mention Orthodox Russia these days, of course, returning to the faith. And, you know, it is by the prayers of, you know, the saints in the United States and by the venerable uh, clergyman as well as the lady that this was all possible, essentially. And, you know, as they say, by the prayers of the new martyrs. And just a quick mention for, you know, uh, you did mention, Father, that your first liturgy was actually... Um, you attended the the church, I believe, on in California, which was headed by Archbishop Anthony of San Francisco. Now, interestingly enough, Archbishop Anthony was the one who wrote the entire service for the New Martyrs and Confessors of Russia, and he was, in fact, such an I guess uh, you could say passionate in a, in a very Orthodox sense, monarchist and an Orthodox monarchist of the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia that he was one of the foremost voices for the canonization of Tsar Nicholas, as well as his family and all the other new martyrs in 1981 at that council. And he was, of course, the successor of the um, esteemed Saint John of Shanghai and San Francisco as well. So he had pretty large shoes to fill. And as we all know, like Conrad mentioned, the analogy there of Blessed Seraphim of Platina, but Blessed Seraphim, of course, knew Saint John personally. And I'm sure Father Trifon had the pleasure, of course, of meeting Archbishop Anthony in his own time as well. So the analogies are all there. So Western, West Coast of the United States Orthodoxy, there is absolute history there. And um, just returning back to the history portion, Father, uh, what was the early life of Blessed Dimitri of Santa Rosa? Um, what was it like? Was he? Did he end up leaving 
the uh, Soviet Union in its early years due to the persecution in a similar way to St. Anthony of San Francisco, who actually um, left Crimea with Baron Wrangel in 1920. Uh, you know, Crimea, again, very relevant to today's geopolitical um, events. But uh, yeah, what were, what were his circumstances life like in, in, the early, in the early days prior to his arrival in the Western United States? Well, one of the first monast, one of the last major monasteries of Russia to be closed by the Soviets was Volam. And uh, the elder Dmitri was in Volam Monastery. And when the Soviet uh, authorities came to Volam, uh, he was one of them that was beaten by them. And then a second time they came, and again, he was beaten. He refused to renounce the Orthodox faith and to leave the monastery, and so they beat him. And then again, there was another case where the elder um, was told by his elder that you need to leave because the Soviet authorities are coming back to the monastery. And he said, this time you will be killed. And so Father Dimitri left in the dead of winter and he went to Finland on his own through all this snow. And it was amazing that he did this uh, it was so bitter uh, a journey that one half of his foot was was lost to frostbite. He also had a a, a bump on his forehead. So there, I've got a photograph of him uh, that I took way back then, uh, where you can see this this very obvious big bump on the top of his forehead, um, and that was something that came out after one of the beatings. And one of his eyes was ajar a bit. And that was the same thing. They, they beat him so hard that one of his eyes was, was permanently ajar. This, this is a man that endured hell uh, by the authorities. And, and yet he stayed the course. And uh, so when he finally left, he, it, was, it was this beautiful thing that happened with him, he went to Paris eventually from, from uh, Finland. And uh, some of the, of the writings that he had, because he was quite the theologian, and some of the writings that he had were um, done during that time. But, but when I knew him, I remember after I'd asked him to be my spiritual father and he tonsured me a monk, I thought... This is a man whose spiritual direction is so simple that it could be something that would be seen as a, almost as a Sunday school class. It was that simple. And I, you know, and at the time I was uh, at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, and I was teaching in a small private high school, um, St. Mary's College High School in Berkeley, a Catholic high school. And uh, and so, you know, I sort of saw myself as a as a uh, an academic sort. And then I'm getting this sort of grade school instruction from my new elder. But then I realized that this man's simplicity was the was something that was acquired not because he was uh, uneducated or dumb but because he was a saint. 
And you look at many of the saints of the Orthodox Church, and you see the same thing. They're, they were intelligent people, in, you know, many of them scholars. And yet, you know, if you go to Mount Athos, and I've been there, I've, I've met elders on the, on the holy mountain that were like him. They were so simple, and, and uh, uh, it, was, it was like you're in their presence, and it isn't the words that they're telling you or saying to you, but it's the sense of holiness that you're experiencing in their presence. And that was the way the elder was to me. When we first moved to Vashon Island with his blessing, and we had been here a number of years, and we were living in a rental house that was just Father Paul and I at the time, and it, we, it was like we were in poverty. We could barely afford the house we were renting. We had no steady income. We relied on the generosity of others. We had a benefactor in Berkeley who had been sending us $800 a month until one day when he made some bad economic decisions and lost most of his money. And at the last minute, as we were waiting for the $800 check for that month, he called me and said, Father, I hate to tell you this, but I cannot send you any money. I'm broke. And so I remember calling Father Dimitri, and I said, we just can't stay on this island anymore. May I have your blessing for us to go to Mount Athos to live out our lives as monastics on the holy mountain? And his response was, no, your salvation is on Vashon Island. And I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding. How could it be here? How could it be? Well, then another miracle happened. We stayed. We struggled in poverty. We uh, had to pay more rent as the rent was going up. There were times that we could barely afford our food. And, and when our car broke down, we were driving a vehicle that had been given to us that was a a sort of a two-door uh, two uh, sports car that was probably 15 years old that somebody gave us. It was an embarrassment to be seen in it. You know, what are two monks doing in an old sports car? And, uh, and then it finally broke it down, and, and we struggled to get another vehicle. So we were really, really poor. And then I thought, I don't know how we can do this. We have to leave. And so we had a feast, we had a, a final, what we thought was going to be our final pilgrimage to the monastery, and we had about 70 people show up at the rental house. And that's when I made the announcement that Father Paul and I were going to go to the Holy Land and offer ourselves up to the patriarch uh, to occupy one of the abandoned monasteries so that the, um, the, the government wouldn't take them over, the Israeli government. And so here I am, and this, there was a, a woman, a number of people that were in tears when they heard our decision. And this one woman, her husband, was a wealthy man. And he came up to me after he saw his wife shedding tears, and he said, I have property right next to your monastery. Uh, would you stay if I gave it to you? And I said, well, could we have time to pray about this? 
And he said, how much time do you need? And I said, three weeks. And he says, I'll give you three days. So I called the bishop and I called uh, Mother Susanna at the Kazan Skeet. And I told them and both the bishop and Abbess Susanna said, yes, take it. It's God's will. Well, interestingly enough, on an island that's about the size of Manhattan and has about 12,000 year-round residents, it's seven and a half miles long, or 14 miles long and about seven and a half miles wide. And we're living on one little part of that island, the, the connected island of Maury Island, which is all seen as Vashon Island. And looking out our kitchen window was a forest. And what did God have in mind for us? That forest. Our monastery is in that very forest that we had lived for many years next to, looking out from our kitchen window. I mean, this was a miracle. Father Dimitri, I'm sure, knew it, that that's where we would be. I mean, I, I'm just totally amazed by it. But then again, I'm not amazed because my whole life since I entered Orthodoxy has been witnessing one miracle after another after another. Stories, I mean, I'm sure this could be a four-hour podcast if we talked about every story and then, you know, I've, I've, I haven't experienced anything that fantastic, but I think everybody has at least their own synchronicities. And like, I haven't met a single person that doesn't have something, you know, you could call at least somewhat miraculous when it comes to their journey into the church. But when you talk about Elder Dimitri, you know, the, we've talked about how there's not, not too much online and how we're hoping, you know, through the process of his canonization that that will change. But between the time when, you know, he was speaking to you and blessing you and reassuring you of your time in Vashon and then his repose in 1991, you mentioned before we were recording that he's effectively responsible for every monastery on the West Coast in some capacity that at least, you know, came even ones that came into being after his repose. I was wondering if you could give us a little, you know, maybe take us south to north or north to south, however you want to think about it, and tell us maybe how he, a few examples of the communities he impacted. Well, I think that just by his very nature, he impacted a lot of communities. He was, he was in the Orthodox Church in America. Uh, his monastery was on the older church calendar. Uh, when we first, when Father Paul and I first entered Orthodoxy and were tonsured by him, we were in the OCA. Uh, it's a long and complicated story about why we left for the church abroad. But I have to tell you that Father Dimitri had an impact on people, broad spectrum of people in other jurisdictions, including our own beloved Archbishop Kirill. Uh, Archbishop Kirill knew him. I know so many people that were impacted by him. Now, when I say these other monasteries, it's not that he went out and founded other monasteries, but it was the spiritual impact that he had in his relationship with the monks of these other monasteries. Um, something I also want to uh, touch on is Father Dimitri was, was one of the most humble people I had ever that I have ever met. When you would look at him, he had this little cross around his neck. He was an archimandrite, but he had this little cross around his neck that, that looked like he 
purchased it in a Protestant bookstore. It was probably two and a half inches uh, in in length, uh, and it it did not look orthodox at all. The photograph that I took of him that I have in my study, in fact, I'm looking at it right now, I asked him to put on his clo book, and I asked him to put on the Archimandrite cross that he had, this huge, beautiful, um, bejeweled cross. But I had never seen him wear it. I knew he had it, but I wanted him to wear it for this formal photo. And so he obliged, and he put it on. This is the photograph that we used as the for the icon, the image of the icon. But this is, again, an example of his humility. Uh, he was, when, when people would come to talk to him, I, I remember once I was at the Kazan Skeet, and there was a knock at the door, and it was a very troubled woman who worked as a caregiver in the neighborhood, and she knew that this was a monastery of women. And so she stopped by because she just needed someone to talk to. And so the nuns were all uh, busy elsewhere. So I invited her into the sitting room, and Father Dimitri walked in from his office, and he sat down there. And Father Dimitri spoke very little English. And so this woman is sitting there talking to the two of us, but is, is, is common when you're talking to someone who speaks English and someone who doesn't. At, at some point, she was only talking to me, and the elder was sitting off to her left. And then, all of a sudden, one of his right hand went up, and she would look over at him. And then he'd put his hand down, and she would continue talking to me, and his hand would go up again. And she would look over and his hand would go down. And finally, I told her, I said, I sense that the elder is calling down your guardian angel. And then, so at that point, she was peaceful and she didn't look again when he was putting his hand up. But I remember one time when I went to talk to him and I was going through a real struggle and I was very depressed and as I was sitting there talking to him, his hand went up and he looked up. And then all of a sudden, he pointed straight at me with his index finger, pointed straight at me with this look of, you shall, you shall depart look. And the moment he did that, Everything that had been troubling me left, miraculously left. And I was filled with peace. And I looked at Mother Susanna, who was sitting there as the translator. And Mother Susanna said, he just expelled a demon that was attacking you. That's Father Dimitri. I remember one time Father Paul was driving the elder to a hot, to a doctor's appointment and they were driving over an overpass on highway 101 and father paul recounted later that he said he almost drove off the, off the road because all of a sudden the elders both hands went up and he said slava bogu and that was the elder his relationship with god was so intense and so focused that moments like that 
it was like he was no longer in your presence. And as another example that I will always remember was when um, the new bishop of, was being uh, consecrated at Holy Trinity Cathedral in San Francisco. And the priests of the diocese were showing up and there were bishops there that were going to consecrate Fitzgerald as, as Bishop Tikon. And I'm standing there, and I'm a simple monk, and I'm standing there in that church, and I witness the elder, who was an archimandrite, which meant that he automatically was uh, outranked every priest that was there. And he was probably put himself at maybe sixth or seventh down the line. And he was wearing tattered vestments that looked like they were they should be burned in a pile so that he would have new vestments made. That's how bad they were. And he wasn't wearing his clo book, but most importantly, he wasn't wearing his mitre. And he was down low. And not one priest said, Oh, elder, please come forward. You you outrank me and pushed him up. Not one of them made an, an effort to do that. They just let him be where he was going to be. And it was sort of like what I witnessed was something I think that lots of priests have to do battle with is pride. Like, oh, if he moves up, I'll move down. And so nobody let that happen. So here's the elder who outranks every one of them is way down the line in rank. That was the elder. He was so humble. The day that we had his funeral, followed um, the, the rainy season in the Bay Area had been an extreme drought. No rain for months. It was so bad. And I was living in, in Berkeley at the time. It was so bad that there, was, there were plans to put a major pipeline for water under the Richmond Bridge that would bring water from Marin County to the East Bay. And here we are, the day of his funeral, and we were already past the rainy season, and it was still this extreme drought. And I arrived at the Kazan Skeet for the funeral in drenching rain. I mean, drenching rain. There was so much rain that all of the tables and chairs that the nuns had put up out in the yard so that people could sit there for a meal after the service were unoccupied. Nobody could be out there. And their tiny little chapel was packed with people way into the dining room. It was so packed. And then at the end of the service, when his casket was put into uh, the, uh, the vehicle to take him to Healdsburg for, for the burial. I remember following, and our windshield wipers were going as fast as they could go. That's how torrential the rains we were getting. And when we got to the cemetery, uh, I stood next to Bishop Tikon holding an umbrella over his head. And as the elders' remains were being lowered into the, into the, his place of rest, the bishop looked at me and he said, 
Father Dimitri, you have a new intercessor before the throne of God on your behalf. And I knew that. Everyone there knew that. He was a saint. And what I didn't know until later was that in Russian tradition, rain on a funeral is considered a major omen, like God's blessings upon this person, that, that, that even the, the heavens are weeping before this person. And that rain continued, torrential rains, until the end of the day. And the following day, we were back into the drought. Complete, total drought. That was God's stamp of approval that this man that you've just buried is a saint. And I have been praying to him as blessed Dimitri since that day. I have never felt abandoned by him. I felt sad and I wept at his loss personally, but I never felt that he was far from me and I always felt that I could ask for his prayers just as I did when he was living in Santa Rosa. Now, why don't we know more about him? Well, I've spoken to Abbess Susanna about this on numerous occasions because Abbess Susanna knows more about him and his life than anyone. But unfortunately, in his humility, he one day, I, I met a young man, a man who had been a novice for a short period of time. He didn't ultimately feel he had a monastic vocation. But this was when the elder was living in Inverness. And so this man went up to the elder, or, or came, came uh, upon the elder burning, he had a huge burn pile going. And he was throwing piles of papers and photographs into this fire. And this, this man noticed that these were things, photos of historic photos of the elder when he was in Paris, uh, when he was at Valam. There were letters, there were documents, there were things that he had written. All of them were being thrown into this pile. And, and this man said, what are you doing? Why are you burning these? And he said, I, I want to burn them because these are not important. And so all this perfect evidence, clear evidence of his sanctity, he was burning up. And then he made Mother Susanna promise that she would never speak about his life, that she would never write about his life, and that she would never speak about his life. And there no, there's so many times that I have begged her, please, you know, this was a saint speaking to you. A saint would say something like that. But now that he's in paradise with God, it's, it's time to let everybody be in um, uh, be his holiness and his sanctity and his sainthood be revealed to the world. And she always, every time, I saw her the last time about a year ago, and I said the same thing. And she said, nothing. She said, nothing. And yet when Shane and I presented her the icon, of Blessed Dimitri of Santa Rosa. She looked at it and she smiled brightly 
and she said it looks just like him and she kissed it and it is on the wall in their in their monastery's chapel so obviously she knows that he's a saint but she made a promise to him and for whatever reason i have been and others have not been able to convince her that of course he made you promise this but it's time that you honor all the people that want to know more about him by revealing the stories that you know of him but she refuses so if anybody has any access to Abba Susanna at the Kazan Skeet in Santa Rosa, go for it. <laughs> I just wanted to comment real quick just how fascinating it is to, to hear this about a essentially a an Orthodox clergyman living in the late 20th century because it sounds like, and most most listeners would probably agree, it sounds like well essentially we're hearing about you know a tale of Dostoevsky visiting one of the Optina elders perhaps in the in the 1850s or the 1860s but in fact it's you know we're, we are you know hearing testimony from uh, Abbot Trifon in, in the first instance of not just clairvoyant miracles but also of the the life and the humility of you know a future saint blessed blessed Dimitri personally and the things that you know Abitrifon himself has experienced in the first hand. And this is essentially also a testimony as to how Orthodox oral and verbal tradition is passed down, because it is exactly through this testimony of eyewitnesses that the humility of these past elders and essentially even some of their clairvoyant sayings and miracles and things that, you know, we witness personally, but it, it isn't written down. There are no academic texts, there are no peer-reviewed journals written about these things. It is almost completely outside of the, you could say, academic theological field in and of itself. Uh, and these particular um, sayings are passed down to us. And when myself and Conrad, when we began the podcast, we did mention a few of the prophecies going around Russia, Greece, Ukraine, about some of the elders over there, for example, who had certain sayings about the futures of their particular local communities or even greater events taking place. And those those prophecies and clairvoyant sayings are far and few between. And that is precisely because uh, it is very organic and spiritual in in the way it is passed down. And what uh, Abbot Trifon has just told us, we're very fortunate to experience, um, you know, how how this essentially takes place. Even in even in north, you know, northwestern United States, when the elder essentially told Abbot Trifon that, look, you shouldn't be going to Mount Athos, you should stay on Vashon Island, which you know may not have made sense at the time, but Elder Dimitri knew what was right at the time. So. It's it's quite it's it's quite amazing sort of hearing hearing more testimony of you know a future Orthodox saint and you know he's he's already blessed Dimitri and uh, you know it would be it would be great to obtain an icon of him but for me that was a sort of shining example father of something which is akin to you know all those traditions we hear about essentially abroad when we hear about you know folks visiting Elder Paisios for example and him him giving them spiritual advice or somewhere in Ukraine or Russia elders essentially guiding their spiritual children and, uh, you know, showing them not just by personal example, but also verbally, verbally instructing them on how to live. It is also, I think for listeners, it may be somewhat surprising, but yes, it is possible even, you know, in the 20th and the 21st century, you have such 
spiritual guidance and leadership as Father Trufan had from Blessed Dimitri, that where you know you would essentially listen to an an elder, especially a elder monastic figure in your life, or almost to the T, and you know you would essentially follow it, what they advise you word by word. This is this is the uh, you know we 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 hear a lot of Russian modern Russian priests mention this tradition of spiritual eldership that it has essentially almost died out in modern Russia. Like it is being revived, as you mentioned, Father, because of the revival of monasticism. But it's still not everybody has this opportunity to have a monk to whom they can go for advice. And of course, I'm sure there's plenty of personal conversations you've had with him in your own time. But also, essentially, whenever you have a very difficult question in life, which you cannot resolve even and even through through prayer clarity can't reach you you can always attend to him and yep. hopefully and he could mm -hmm. yes yes yeah it's um very striking and of course the uh the, the the story about how despite the academic background he had at balaam and i'm sure he knew the liturgy off by heart and not just the liturgy but the various uh you know lit liturgical variations and Valam is very famous for its modern choir and if you can imagine i mean we can't even probably imagine what what the choir was like prior to the revolution over there but of uh, him living on Valam monastery dedicating himself to theology to liturgics to essentially probably you, you knew the lives of saints all of them off by heart and of course then essentially going into this i suppose going abroad and and essentially humbling himself to the point where you know as you mentioned this foolish simplicity and it's almost akin to something as to uh you know this is reminiscent of saint siluan the Athenite as well who would essentially give very deep theological truths through very simple actions or even words without really going into you know it's very succinct very much in summary but he would essentially uh give witness to the truth through these uh, small sayings and gestures, which is is very amazing to us today, because you know uh, there there is a lot of um, there is a lot of talk about Orthodox academia being this uh, being this crowning jewel of our tradition, which it is in, in fact. But there is also this other this other aspect to the simplicity, which is obtained by the monastics essentially through their rigorous prayer life and ascetic uh, tradition. One of the um, memories that I have as a priest friend of mine years ago told me when he found out that i was asking the elder dimitri to be my spiritual father he said you know you need to know that he this priest who was the, the chancellor at the time for the oca diocese of san francisco uh, told me that he recognized the sanctity and holiness of the elder dimitri and he would frequently visit him but he said, you need to know that if you ask him to be your spiritual father, you're automatically going to be judged by a lot of the clergy of this diocese who are essentially modernists. I remember once going to a, a, a conference and uh, as clergy were arriving, there were the traditional clergy like my friend who arrived with their uncut hair and beards and their cassocks and then there were others who were arriving with clerical collars, and they had their cassocks uh, over their shoulders, uh, like you were like you were wearing uh, carrying a winter coat that you didn't need that day. That was the way it was. And then they would put their cassocks on when they got there. And these were priests that were oftentimes clean shaven. And and so my friend said, "These are the priests that will judge you 
because they will see you as, well, there's that long beard of yours and that long hair and that cassock. And you have the elder Dimitri as your spiritual father. And, uh, and, and frankly, I didn't care what anybody thought because I felt drawn by God to ask him to be my spiritual father. And this same priest told me that once when he was celebrating the, celebrating the divine liturgy at the monastery, that he, and he said he saw this on number, numerous occasions. A lot of people don't know this, but at the moment of the epiclesis, after the priest has said, this is my body and this is my blood, and then the priest calls down the Holy Spirit upon the gifts that this bread become the body of Christ, that this chalice become the blood of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, making the sign of the cross three times over them. And it's at this moment that, the, that a holy flame descends upon the gifts. And only... A few saints have, have ever been able to see this and witness this, the fire consuming the gifts, like the sacrifice on the altar before God uh, uh, of the Old Testament. And my friend said that it was obvious that Father Dimitri could see the flame because he said at that moment he was so transfixed that that it was like everything around him, all of the fellow priests that were kind of celebrating, everything around him, everyone around him had disappeared. All he could see was the flame. That was the elder Dimitri. Wow. Sorry, I just had to, I had to pause to think about the whole, <laughs> I was visualizing the story, so I had to, uh, have to have to hop back in here, but truly a, a fantastic saint of our time and you know knowing these details now i'm just more and more impressed i myself live about an hour away from holy archangels which is a monastery founded by elder ephraim and i was i've heard some amazing stories about him as well so i'm just more and more impressed by how god despite frankly just the evil nature of this country that we currently live in he still in his mercy gave us these these guides and these lights and i guess uh, I wanted to bring up one of the only things you can read from Elder Dimitri online is a it's called the period of decline and it was apparently published in the in the journal of the Orthodox Dioc Orthodox in America Church, the OCA Diocese of the West back in I think it was after his repose in 1992 it was published but he discusses humanity entering a new epoch decline and decadence he talks about its roots in the Renaissance he references Saint Ignatius Briantchaninov who many know is a fantastic Russian elder and saint and and he goes on to even reference the ultimately the current bastardization and twisting of the u.s constitution which was originally made for a moral and righteous people and has now basically been used to enforce a militant secularism and i couldn't help but notice the similarities in this in his writing there with your most recent video well at least at the time of this being recorded father of your emergency broadcast discussing you know the the unfortunate state of this country i was wondering if you you know, did how much of an impact did his perspective on America? Like, it seems to me that he was quite accurate. You know, it was nowhere near this bad in 1991. Well, it's true. It wasn't as bad. But I, I have to tell you, in the last couple of years, I have been threatened with death 
by perfect strangers. One was in a, I, I was on my way back from San Francisco and I stopped in a, in a um, grocery store in Portland to pick up something for the road. And I came out of this store and there was a woman standing there handing out uh, Marxist tracts. And I recognized her because I had been on the Central Committee of the Socialist Workers Party with this woman many, many, many years ago. And so I was a Marxist myself. And, and so I, I, I said, oh, I haven't seen you in years. And she looked at me and she said, who are you? And I told her. And then she said, what are you? And I said, I said, well, I am a Russian Orthodox monk. And she said, when the, Rus when the revolution starts, we're coming for you. Well, the first thing I could think of to say was, well, let me know and I'll bake a cake. <laughs> and then another time I was driving up the Oregon coast from California and I stopped into Lincoln City uh, to gas up. And I went into the convenience store to get a soda for the road. And on my way out, there was a young man who was probably 28 to 30 and, you know, had a beard and and uh, was wearing a Pendleton shirt and blue jeans. And as I walked out, he, he came up and he said, uh, are you Abbot Trifon? And I assumed that, erroneously as it turns out, that he was somebody that, that was aware of my blog articles. And so I said, yes. And he said, the revolution has begun. We're coming for you. So I used the same line. Well, be sure to let me know and I'll bake a cake. But the, but, but the thing is that this is, a, is an example of the, of the age that we are living in right now. I really believe that we are in the age of Antichrist. And I really do believe that, you know, I'm going to be 78 in a few weeks in November. And, uh, and I've, so I've lived a long life. And I, you know, I walk with a cane and I suffer from sciatica problems. But I, but I also know, and I pray to God, that the only thing, I can't serve. I haven't been able to serve the divine liturgy but once in the past year because of balance and pain. But I, I've, I've let God know that, that, that if it be your will, let me, in whatever remaining years I have, let, it, let me have a ministry as a missionary online, doing my, my vlogs and my podcasts and doing everything. I do a blog every day, and now I'm doing some form of a blog uh, four times a, 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 a week, and then two times a week, I make a recording of, of either a scripture passage or a quote from one of the saints. And then uh, our uh, brother Basil puts that all together with moving images of the monastery or nature or so on. This, is, this takes a lot of time and effort, but I do it every day because I have made this promise to God that as long as you give me the energy... And, and, and the, the ability to do this, I will do this. But the main reason why I'm doing this is because 
our world needs a wake-up call. Years ago, I would go to the uh, Life-Giving Spring Monastery in Northern California. Mother Markella is the abbess there. And there's this Greek Orthodox retreat center there. And I would be one of the speakers for the Orthodox Christian Fellowship. They haven't had them there for years now. They decided that the West Coast didn't have enough people coming to it, so they stopped it. But I, I noticed something, that the sheer number of young men who would come there every year, and they'd see each other once a year, and they were bonded like brothers, but they only saw each other once a year. And so I gathered them together, and I said, what would you think if we founded, if I founded a lay brotherhood, which is, was very common among Russians and Greeks at one point. In fact, I found out that the last lay brotherhood before I founded this one was founded by St. John of San Francisco. So I formed the Salish Brotherhood of St. John the Wonder Worker. And we have about 80-some members now. And we have twice yearly in the winter and in the summer retreats here. And we average like the last one this summer, we had 18 young men came and they pitched tents in our forest and they attended the services. And I had uh, time to give spiritual counsel to them. But what, but mostly I sit back and then enjoy the beauty of, of seeing these young men supporting one another in their journey into, in, into God, their journey as fellow Orthodox Christians, and giving, this, giving support to one another. You know, we live in an age when young men are demonized. They're, they're made, oh, well, you're privileged, especially if you're white. You're privileged. And these are young men who are not privileged. When I was in college, 70% of college students in most universities and colleges were, were young men. Now it's only 40%. And, and many young men that I've talked to are tell me they're not going to go to college because they don't feel welcome. They don't feel welcome. And those that do go feel that they are marginalized by faculty members as, oh, well, you are someone who is privileged and none of them feel privileged none of them and yet this is who they are you know and at the same time we are foisting a, a, a demonically inspired sexuality on our children you know as a former therapist i can tell you that, that the human being doesn't have a fully developed brain until about the age of 25. And yet we're telling our adult, our parents, that your child at the age of five or six or eight is perfectly capable of deciding if they want to trans, transition to the opposite sex. And then we let them. And in some states, like California and Washington, if you are a parent who does not, is not going to let that happen, your children can actually be taken away from you. I mean, this total demonic madness. And the other thing, you know, and I'm not, 
I, I really do believe in my heart that we must love and respect everyone. Well, you know, I put in eight years as a volunteer prison chaplain in Monroe, Washington. And one of the prisons I worked with, there were people that were lifers for committing terrible crimes. But I saw in many of them, well, I saw in all of them, a child of God in needing, in, who was in need of spiritual counsel to bring them to repentance. And I baptized many in those prisons into the Orthodox faith. And I saw the transformation that took place, even in those, especially in those that had no hope of ever being out free in our community. But they were free in Christ. They were given liberation in Jesus Christ. And yet I see people that are young people that are out in our world today who are enslaved. They are imprisoned behind walls of unbelief where Christianity is demonized and that we who are Christians are made to look like we are bigots. We live on an island. I remember once I got a telephone call from a priest in Nyack, New York. And it was soon after we moved here in 88. We moved our monastery to the Vashon Island in 88. Uh, this priest called me and he says, Father, there's an article about Vashon Island in the New York Times. It says that it has the largest per capita uh, population of lesbian couples in the nation. And I said, well, now you know my secret. We wanted to carry <laughs> to an island full of lesbian couples. But soon after that, we had an open house because we wanted to have islanders know who we were. There were all kinds of rumors about us that we never spoke, that we were lived, lived in silence. And so uh, we first that was when we first acquired our land, our 16 acres that we have now. And we cleared the about four and a half acres for the site of the monastery. And so we decided to invite all of the neighbors on Maury Island to come to this, to this, these grounds. And, and I said, bring, bring your um, food to share and bring um, uh, folding chairs and whatever you need, and blankets, and meet your neighbors and meet the monks. So we had a huge number of people show up, over, I think, 75 people. And some of these were neighbors that had never met each other. And so here we are, we're all sharing this wonderful time together. And, and it was obvious that two of the couples that came were, were gay men, and three of the, uh, of the couples were lesbians. It was, it was obvious how they were interacting with one another. We never treated them differently. We, we treated them as warmly as we did everyone else. All Sin is equal in the eyes of God. And I am not about to I am not about to bring down the wrath of God upon my sins when I need his forgiveness by judging anybody else. I'm not going to do it. So I love it on all of them. That's what I do as a Christian. But at the same token, if we really value people, 
and really love them, we do not keep the truth hidden under a bushel. That's why I don't do it all the time because a lot of my 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 vlogs and my podcasts are done just basically to share the depths of Orthodox Christianity and, and theology in a simple way that the average person can comprehend because there are so many Orthodox Christians who know nothing of the faith. All they know is they go to church and they receive the Eucharist. That's all they know. And they're not about to read a book that you give them. They're not going to read theological works. They're not going to read the lives of the saints. That's the majority of people. So when I started doing the blog, I had that in mind. I wanted to take the profound teachings of the church, and I wanted to put them in such a simple way that anyone could read them and, and understand, oh, that's why we believe this. Oh, that's what the church teaches. And then when I branched out on doing the, the vlogs, the videos, it was that in mind as well, because I want people to see in my face when I'm looking into that camera someone who loves them. This is why I'm doing this, because I actually love them. And I see them as members of the body of Christ. We're all in this together. This is who we are. We are the people of God. And we need to embrace one another. One of the fortunate things about going to this uh, St. Nicholas Ranch in Northern California every year was that I got to know Abbess Markella. And Mother Markella, a number of years ago, I was there, I think three years ago, I was there for their feast day. And it was during the COVID thing, and, and uh, they weren't allowed to have people in their trapezes. So they were feeding all the countless visitors uh, in the plaza. And then they didn't have any problem with people, whether they wore masks or not. They had a sign at the entrance to the monastery, here's a mask if you need one. But most of the people that attended the services were not wearing masks, and the nuns certainly weren't. And I wasn't. And anyway, we're, I'm in the trapeza, and I'm sitting next to Mother Markella, and all of a sudden she stood up, and she told her nuns assembled, I think that she's got about 40 nuns there, she stood up and she said, I haven't had any contact with my brother in Greece in over 20 years, I think it was, either 20 or 30 years, I don't remember for sure. But she said, I haven't had any contact with my brother in all these years, and I have decided from this moment on that I am going to adopt Father Trifon as my brother. And then, since I'm a gentleman, would never ask a woman if her age, so I assume she's younger than I, but I also assume she's older in monasticism than I. So I looked at her and I said, I am your older, younger brother. So she refers to me as her younger, older brother. <laughs> and then one day when the elder... Paisius of St. Anthony's was visiting, and I met him for the first time. And the three of us had our photo taken together. And we're standing in front of the main fountain in their plaza. And I, I handed the, my, my cell phone to one of the nuns and asked her to take the picture of us. 
And later I'm looking at the photo and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, they're both eyes are cast down and they're looking serious. And I'm looking straight at the camera and I've got a big smile on my face. And I went to mother and I said, oh, please forgive me. I look like a terrible monk. I said, you guys are, you know, humble and you're looking down and I'm looking straight at the camera with a smile on my face. And Mother Markella said, have you ever noticed that all the photos we've had taken together that we're both laughing? And true, we are. I've got numerous photographs framed in my study and in our library of the two of us together. And we're laughing or we're smiling. You know, neither of us, you know, has the serious, well, she does. She's, I I'm, have every reason to believe that she is a clairvoyant. And that having her as my sister has been one of the greatest blessings that I could have had in my life. And I rank her right up there with the elder Dimitri. She is a living saint, just as elder Dimitri was a living saint. And I have no doubt that, that if our world lasts long enough, that mother will be eventually glorified as a saint of the Orthodox Church. So I give thanks to God for her. It's very heartwarming, Father, to hear um, about Mother Markella, who I don't believe me and Conrad have have pretty much ever heard of her, uh, at least not from among our circles. So it's quite fascinating to actually hear your firsthand accounts of, um, you know, uh, well, uh, essentially your your relationship together, sort of knowing each other and uh, having having that sharing sort of orthodox your your experiences in orthodoxy. I think a lot of our listeners, Father, would uh, agree with you on the diagnosis of the modern world that it is, in fact, uh, it is it is in fact we are living in a very eschatological age, you could say, and the signs of the times, not just in America but also abroad, are quite evident. Especially given, well, we speak about it quite often with Conrad, but we can't uh, we can't seem to ignore the fact that we that Europe is experiencing a new wave of, you could almost say, well, the beginning stages of what could be perceived as a persecution on Orthodox Christianity, beginning in, of course, uh, modern Ukraine, which is right on the borders of, you could say, Western Europe and Russia, right in between the two. And essentially what's happening over there, we would like perhaps maybe a short comment from yourself, because in many ways, I think it's a big lesson for not just Orthodox clergymen, monastics and laity, in the first world countries, but people need to take this into perspective that Ukraine was is a very developed country. And I think following the news, even, you know, not that following the news is a very healthy thing in today's modern age, which I think we would all agree, but even following the news as, as rarely as some people do, it is hard not to notice the fact that, well, we see bishops being tried, you know, we see bishops being sent to jail for essentially fictitious crimes, or you could almost say uh, political um, politically motivated moves by the Ukrainian Zelensky government. We see uh, a clergyman being murdered and killed, at least in the last eight years, several attempts have been made. And we've seen, of course, churches being closed, destroyed, almost vandalized, of course, broad vandalizations, and also just state decrees that, look, a certain church is in the way of, of a road or it's built in the wrong way and we should, it's, we should simply destroy it or even monasteries being closed, property being taken, abuses of a kind we haven't probably seen since, at least in Ukraine, since the, you know, the Soviet times, you know, when we've spoken about abuses against the church and persecution. And 
I think it's it's you mentioned a wake up call for uh, yes Orthodox folks and all Christian folks in America, and I think you're absolutely correct in saying that because well, Ukraine a sort of sort of you could say almost first world country, a second world country where people lived quite well over the last twenty thirty years. Nobody really saw this coming. Persecution just around the corner, and it seems that the local population is being programmed by the media in a similar way to how essentially we were all programmed by COVID. It's almost like a, a test run, or you could say, by the powers of the world in seeing how the modern person, you know, and Ukrainians are quite modern people on average, how they would perceive a local persecution through legal means, through, you know, coercive state state means, how they would perceive a persecution, how they would, um, you know, would they go along with it? Would they uh, would they support their local priests or their local bishops? Would they write character statements to court? Would they attend courtrooms in order to support them in person? And would they defend their own churches from being destroyed? And I think it's almost like the powers of the world are watching what's happening in Ukraine and kind of running a test similar to COVID where, where you know, it was all about creating a large global panic over seemingly uh, something akin to the flu. And just wanted your succinct comments, Father, and just uh, don't want to hold you up for too long. But I think this is this may be on the mind of many people. Everyone's watching this take place and they're thinking, well, is it really that bad? And I think me and Conrad do agree that it is. I mean, me and Conrad aren't as old in age, but we think this is something really unprecedented for, you know, you could say the civilized world, the, the modern liberal civilized world to be witnessing in the first instance. And perhaps this is um, the first of many waves that we'll see in the, you know, moving into the future. Well, what a lot of people don't know is that when Patriarch Bartholomew betrayed the Orthodox Church by recognizing a deposed bishop of the Moscow Patriarchate as being the head of the, quote, Ukrainian Church, and the vast majority of the monasteries and churches of the Ukraine were not under Moscow, but in communion with Moscow. And he essentially, they were demonized and shoved, shoved aside by a government in sync with the U.S. State Department who paid off Bartholomew about five or six million dollars to side against the church that was in the canonical church of Ukraine that was in communion with Moscow, as though they were under the thumb of Moscow. And when I heard that this was happening, my first thought was Kissinger, who had decided that Russia would never be great until it got rid of orthodoxy. And now, you know, why are we as Americans concerned about the Ukraine? We're not concerned about the Ukraine. I don't believe that any of our leaders or politicians care one iota about the Ukrainian people. We just see this as a proxy war against Russia, and we divide and conquer. When the Soviet Union imploded, and all of these countries that been, had been part of the Soviet Union were becoming independent, Russia asked the United States and NATO, would you agree to not allow any of these countries to join NATO? And the agreement was, yes, we won't ask them to join NATO. Well, we lied. And the last country 
that still had not been part of NATO was Ukraine. And Ukraine, if you look at the history of Russia and invasions, they all almost always came through Ukraine. <laughs> and so if Ukraine is going to be part of NATO, of course Russia would be concerned. Now, people want to blame Putin. Oh, well, Putin, you know, he's not really a Christian. And look at all the flaws. Well, you know, we can do the same with Constantine. Constantine delayed his baptism into orthodoxy till towards the end because he was so concerned that his sin was too much. He wanted to have the, the, the washing of his sins away at the very end of his life. So, you know, we can look throughout the history of the Christian world and we can see all kinds of flaws of leadership, of czars and kings and so on. So, so of course, Putin isn't perfect. But I wager that between Putin and what we have in the present White House, the difference is that Putin is standing firm against transgenderism and gay marriages and all the other excesses of the, of the liberal woke community that we see alive and well in the Western world and the movement towards globalism. And in our own country, we're seeing the rights and privileges that we've had inherent in who we are as a nation being whittled away. In fact, I wouldn't even say whittled away, chopped away in rapid succession. I mean, this is not the country I grew up in. This is not the country I even recognize. And I have to tell you, there are areas in Portland and San Francisco and in Seattle that as a monk who is always dressed as a monk, I wouldn't dare go. I wouldn't dare go because I wouldn't for a moment believe that somebody wouldn't shoot me or stab me or beat me to the ground, because that is the society that we're living in now. And if you're Russian Orthodox, you're somehow even worse. I have friends that won't even speak to me anymore, that were friends for years that I knew when I was a, a police and fire chaplain, who were in law enforcement, and Christians, avowed believers, but now they don't want anything to do with me. And, and I know it's because they see me as some sort of a crazed radical because of some of the things I've had to say about COVID and the mask mandate and, and a myriad of other things that are madness, total madness. Our, our weekly newspaper on this island, uh, this woman called me one day in a very friendly way and and I was stupid enough to buy into it. And she says, oh, we'd like to do an interview with you. And, and we can do it over the phone. And she was so sweet. And then she went online and she found some articles that I had written way back about COVID and the vaccine. So in the newspaper article, it, it basically, she makes me look like some fool. And she said, and, oh, and he believes that, that the vaccine, vaccination will bring on the mark of the beast. And one of our monks was in the grocery store one day and a woman came up to him and said, 
Do you really believe in the mark of the beast? Well, yes, we believe in the mark of the beast. But to be mocked like this. And then I see Christian clergy on this island that I know are part of denominations that were traditionally very conservative politically who say nothing. They say nothing. I was in downtown Vashon one day, maybe a year and a half ago, and I came out of a store, and I'm outside, and I see a minister and his family that I've known forever. I knew his dad, and his dad was a friend of mine, and he was a minister. And I saw out of the corner of my eye, when they saw me, they made a complete about face and went in the opposite direction, and they were all masked, and I wasn't. So everyone here at this monastery has had COVID, every one of us. And I'm the old one. I'm referred to by some of my monks as grandpa. And, and, and my COVID was not even like a bad flu. And yet, in the last year and a half, I know of two young athletes, male athletes, in their early 20s, who were individually out jogging and they dropped dead of heart attacks, having shown no signs of heart issues whatsoever, and they dropped dead of heart attacks. And there's a, an abundance of evidence of the dangers of these vaccines. So I speak out, and I'm demonized, and I'm sidelined. Oh, there's that crazy guy again. Well, I guess I'm in good company, because that's the way... Our Lord Jesus Christ was treated by the Pharisees and by the Romans. Well, Father, I think, you know, I'm, I'm honored that, you know, that you've been able to speak on these topics. And I'm honored that, you know, I remember Father Martin sent me a photo of y'all driving and he had our show on. And so I was, I was so honored that you and your monks have tuned into our broadcast. It, it keeps us humble and keeps us vigilant so that our tongues don't get loose and we just say whatever comes to our mind, we keep it, you know, PG and everything, you know, with our, we, we like to think everyone can listen to it. And uh, it, it truly is an honor that you joined us. And uh, we talking about the persecutions is like, we have to think about, I mean, look, we saw the videos of Metropolitan Paul getting, you know, arrested, dragged out of the service by the Ukrainian authorities. I mean, that's, I mean, just think about it. If that's as if Abbot Trifon was serving or if Bishop Luke up in Jordanville or if Abbot Paisios talked about serving in St. Anthony's and the FBI came in and took them away. I mean, just imagine something like that happening. And then, of course, there's articles in Council on Foreign Relations publications, you know, sowing seeds of, of treason, I guess, like trying to present the Orthodox Church as potential spies or, or some other nonsense. And we, as the beginning of the uh, Catacomb Saints book published by St. Herman's Monastery, it said, you know, today in Russia, tomorrow in America. And we had a great discussion on the rise of Christianity in Russia, and unfortunately, you know, we've been gifted these fantastic elders in the late 20th and early 21st centuries, you know, Elder Dimitri, Elder Ephraim, and the other fantastic saintly people that Abbot Trifon mentioned that he came that he came across in his monastic journey. You know, it seems that those were given to us to prepare for our current, you know, era of, of struggles. So, Abbot Trifon, I want to thank you so much. I want to tell everybody that we'll have links to supporting the monastery and the fantastic video work that they're doing in the description below. And Father, I want to give you the opportunity to say any last words and just uh, bless us. And then uh, we'll, I think we'll wrap this up. Thank you so much. Well, it's been a joy to be with you. And uh, any of you that would like to follow my blogs or my uh, video, my blogs, 
uh, just do uh, all lowercase abbottrifon.com. A-B-B-O-T-T-R-Y-P-H-O-N.com. And, and may God bless all of you on our journey into the heart of God.